Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Lauren Martz, Executive Director of Biopharma Intelligence. Karen Koch-Tasman, Director of Biopharma Intelligence. Steve Austin, Washington Editor. On today's pod, lessons from the Jem Perley Rectal Cancer Meeting, a look at the debate over use of overall survival as an endpoint, and the latest translational treasures from BioCentury's distillery. And we'll also take a look at the market for biotech IPOs. But first, this week's BioCentury podcast is brought to you by BioEquity Europe. It's scheduled for May 14th through 16th in Dublin, Ireland. We invite you to join BioCentury and EBD Group at this exclusive event for CEOs, investors, and biotech decision makers as we discuss how to develop a new playbook for biotech success in Europe. Learn more on our website, bioequityeurope.com. And if you have yet to catch the latest BioCentury show, Amgen's head of R&D, David Reese, uh, was in conversation with our editor-in-chief, Simone Fishburne. Reese discussed how biopharmas can capitalize on omics promise. Industries need to widen the hiring aperture to bring in new skill sets and highlights from Amgen's pipeline. It's good stuff. Biocentury.com. All right. FDA's Oncologic Drugs Advisory Committee took the first step last week toward carving out a new cancer setting where single arm studies might be sufficient to support drug approvals. ODAC voted eight to five in support of a clinical development plan for Gem Perley. That's a PD-1 inhibitor from GSK as neoadjuvant therapy in a rectal cancer subpopulation. Lauren, what set this meeting apart? Thanks, Chef. I think the first thing that sets it apart is the fact that th this meeting was held to discuss the clinical development plan for Jim Perley in this indication. So this meeting was convened after a study at Memorial Sloan Kettering found that all 12 patients you know, small study, all 12 patients who were treated with Jim Perley instead of standard of care, which was um, chemo radiation and usually surgery, which um, has big quality of life impacts in rectal cancer. All of these patients avoided surgery for uh, now for at least a year. And, and there are a few additional patients that we now have data from. So this was held before the company has validated these studies before there's been any submission. And, and the goal was to figure out a clinical development plan given how promising the data are, and the fact that there are a couple complications and a couple of um, standard FDA protocols that would need to have an exception to get, get this program through. But yeah, I think the first thing that's interesting is that this is just a departure from the normal type, normal timing of an ad com. And I, 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 I'll jump in there. You know, I think, um, well, first I'd say that, um, you know, eight to five vote is not exactly a ringing endorsement. You know, people treat these things like they're, you know, 51% means that they're going to um, do something, you know, and that that isn't necessarily the case at all. But, but I agree. I think there is this kind of meta story about the Zodec meeting that it wasn't a meeting to discuss a product application like usual as a meeting to discuss a clinical development plan. It's not the first time that ODEC has done something like this, but 
it's it's interesting important because I think that ODAC really sets the pattern for the rest of the agency in a lot of ways. And I, I have to also kind of to my own horn a little bit. It's something that I've advocated uh, for a couple of times more, most recently in a commentary about Adjihelm, where I wrote that FDA should create and adhere to a process for gaining scientific consensus on approvable endpoints for high priority diseases long before it receives product applications. And um, that FDA should, should hold workshops, it should consult with uh, world experts, and it should try to foster consensus in the scientific community on endpoints and on clinical development strategies before it considers specific applications. Um, so bravo to them. I think it's really good that they're they're doing it in this case. The, the problems are really complicated and it's gonna be difficult. What, whatever they do, it's gonna be difficult to move forward. I think part of the difficulty also I would imagine is that physicians are gonna have the option to prescribe Gemperly or, or perhaps other um, similar agents on an off-label basis, right? That that was part of the issue that was brought up, yeah, is you have this very impressive data suggesting that if you're treated with a PD-1 inhibitor, you might not have to go on and have surgery. So first of all, it's a rare indication. This was specifically rectal cancer patients who are MSI high, who have a mutation that makes them deficient in their DNA mismatch repair. There aren't great, great estimates for how big this population is, but that makes it hard to enroll a randomized trial. But then there's also the fact that it's going to be hard to get patients to sign on to this when they can probably access the PD-1 inhibitor. You know, why would you sign up to be potentially randomized? So part of the issue was, is it okay to go go forward with a single arm study as part of the pre-approval, pre-accelerated approval development plan? And then the other question is, so if we can't do a randomized study in this population, GSK is proposing a randomized study in a related population, colon cancer patients who have these same genetic features. Um, and that way you could confirm potentially that a new endpoint that they're also proposing here, a clinical complete response endpoint, is correlated with long-term outcomes. Even if it's not the same indication, you could correlate it in a similar indication. But um, we heard from Rick Pazder on the, the ODAC meeting that he's concerned that even that trial wouldn't be able to enroll. The morbidity associated with a surgery in colon cancer is, is not as severe as in rectal cancer, but still, he, he doesn't believe that you'd be able to get patients to, to sign up to be randomized in that trial either, if you could potentially avoid surgery. So, so it's kind of a victim of its own success here. Yeah, I, I think... I think that's true. And, and like you said, the ODAC voted in favor of this clinical development plan. Um, GSK says that they're planning to start even that confirmatory trial in the next couple of months, and they're not talking about an application for a couple of years now. So you get that rolling, get patients enrolled in the studies and, and treated before you would actually have this approved for the indication, at least. And, and they think that will be possible. But, but that remains to be seen. There's a chance that this could go against you know all of these efforts that are being made to have the clinical trials, the confirmatory trials underway and enrolling patients and, you know, likely to be completed. That's a decision that FDA has to make. So what, what does it mean for patients if there isn't a clear path forward for developing this, at least not a path forward that uh, the GSK is willing to invest in? Are patients still going to be able to get access either to Gemperly or to uh, other PD-1 inhibitors? I think that if GSK and FDA can't find a path forward, that this is really an instance where academic medical centers, um, the NCI, should step up to the plate because it's such a clear potential to benefit patients. There's got to be a way to develop this evidence and to develop it quickly. 
Yeah, I agree. And that's another thing I found really interesting about the meeting is that we don't have a clear correlation with long-term benefit here, but this committee voted to go forward with this plan. And that's really based on the quality of life benefits rather than the efficacy benefits, rather than proven efficacy, which it just goes along with what we keep hearing over and over again, that patient reported outcomes need to be a bigger factor in clinical development. So I think that's an interesting, interesting development there too. Yeah. Avoiding surgery or even Postponing it for more than a year is a tremendous benefit in this case. All right. Well, staying with FDA, overall survival has been the gold standard of cancer endpoints, but that has become a topic of debate of late. It's getting harder to show an overall survival benefit. Lauren, you, you sort of mentioned victim of their own success earlier. Is that sort of the case here? And how is FDA addressing what's going on with OS now? Yeah, I think that's actually a quote in the story, as someone mentioned, that that we're the victims of our own success because the more effective cancer drugs get, the longer patients are living, the more confounding variables there are to uh, impact overall survival analysis. So, you know, patients are getting lots of different drugs after they've been in a trial. You have to allow crossovers in a lot of trials for these advanced cancer therapies, and it's getting harder and harder to prove an overall survival benefit. But what we did see when we looked at the data that FDA has made publicly available on the confirmatory trial requirements for the ongoing accelerated approvals that they have. Uh, We noticed that there's been a huge drop off in the number of trials that are requiring accelerated approval as a primary endpoint. It's still required as a secondary endpoint in these advanced cancers where it would standardly be used as a primary endpoint. So it's, there has been a shift, we believe in the way the FDA is is thinking about overall survival when you can't measure it, which is, I think, an interesting an interesting way that FDA has been adapting to the the changing uh, landscape. So that yeah. means that you know, it's, if it's a secondary endpoint, you're using it to make sure there's not a safety detriment. There's there's not that requirement to prove a statistically significant improvement in OS, just that you don't make OS worse. And and I and I'll bang on the same um, dramas I did um, last week, which I think that. This just highlights the failure of the American healthcare system to systematically track outcomes. Uh, There should be systems in place that automatically and routinely monitor how medical interventions perform and how they interact with each other over time. Nothing could be more basic than figuring out um, how they impact overall survival. And that should be something that's collected routinely from clinical care. It shouldn't have to be the subject of of, of a trial. I mean, it should be incorporated into, into trial endpoints, but but you should also have, and FDA should have the, the confidence and the physicians and patients should have the confidence that they are going to know over time uh, how different medical interventions and combinations of medical interventions in different populations impact basic things like overall survival. All right. Well, Lauren, uh, obviously, this is uh, both are very uh complicated uh, subjects. Lauren has two very meaty stories that we published on Friday, so check them out on biocentry.com. I'd like to turn to Karen now to find out what's on tap in the distillery. Thanks, Jeff. Well, the distillery, of course, is Biocentry's survey of translational academic literature, where we look across about 30 journals looking for papers with disease-modifying effects that propose either new biological targets for disease or perhaps new uh, compound approaches for getting at disease, perhaps with known targets. And so um, some 
Highlights from the latest issue, uh, we saw a group from Switzerland looking at LIN28, inhibiting the RNA binding protein LIN28 for NASH. And uh, they showed that probing this with tool compounds, they, they showed that the biology of LIN28 inhibition induced ketogenesis and lipid catabolism and suppressed lipogenesis and showed some disease-modifying activity in male mouse models of NASH. And then on the compound side, we had a group from a Duke University describing a peptide-based sublingual vaccine for UTIs, and it was delivering iron receptor proteins from uh, the bacteria that are expressed in a large proportion of cases, incorporated into a self-assembling peptide nanopolymer fibers, along with a T-cell helper epitope, and uh, showed some disease-modifying activity there. And then lastly, I'll just make a quick plug for our other translational recurring feature, Translation in Brief. That's where we cover things coming out of companies or, or perhaps with a company affiliation already. So for example, in the latest issue, a pair of degrader compounds from Royvant and from uh, Dialectic Therapeutics. But also we look at innovations that could provide directions forward potentially for multiple companies. And one that stood out was a University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center paper that described a new cell death mechanism that they called, and this is very hard to pronounce, disulfidptosis. So it was a disulfide stress cell death mechanism for cancer that could be potentially tapped translationally. All right. Thanks for that, Karen. Translation in Brief publishes once or twice a week on our website, and the distillery is a uh a monthly offering. So uh, do look for those. We have a distillery dashboard as well on our website, which is fun to play with if you want to dig around for some translational tidbits that you are interested in. All right, IPOs, not a word I've had an opportunity to say very often on the podcast lately. It has been Certainly a pretty thin uh, market for IPOs. Uh, biotech has faced some fierce headwinds for the past year in terms of fresh paper getting out, uh, in particular on the NASDAQ. But last week, Mineralis went public with a strong showing, uh, upsized its deal, traded up, raised about $190 million, and yeah went up about 15% in its first day of trading. That offering came weeks after another hypertension company, Syncor, said AstraZeneca would acquire it for up to $1.8 billion, and uh, Mineralis wasted no time, filed for its IPO shortly thereafter. And it is the second strong biotech IPO on NASDAQ this month. Structure Therapeutics also upsized its deal and traded up. Shares were up 70% in its first day of trading. And that was sizable. Like Syncor Structure, uh, one of the five largest IPOs in the past 12 months. And it's certainly good news for a biotech market that is, has faced what has pretty much been a closed window for IPOs. Jeff, is this a sign that the markets are thawing? 
It's a good question, Lauren. Uh, coming into the year, buy-siders told my colleague Stephen Hansen that they really didn't think there'd be a meaningful IPO market through at least the first half of this year. Both of these companies are standouts in their own way. Obviously, Mineralis riding Syncor's coattails and Structure, whose lead compound is in testing for diabetes and obesity, is led by CEO Ray Stevens. He sold his prior company for quite a few billion dollars. And like Mineralis as well, it's backed by a blue chip group of venture investors. I spoke with Brad Longcar earlier this month. He told me that he sees the market as being closed for the average company, but I suppose you have to start somewhere. All right, we will be taking next Monday off. We'll be back Tuesday. Stephen Hansen will be bringing you the podcast along with some of our editorial colleagues. And you can find all of our podcasts on Spotify, Stitcher, Google, and Apple. Our friends at Kendall Square Orchestra provide the music for our podcast. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. Thanks for tuning in.